अजनोलंबित भुजो कनकाबदाटो संकीर्तनायक पितरो कमलायथक्षो विश्वंभरो द्विजबरो दुगधार्मपालो पंडे जगत प्रियकरो करुणावुतारो पंडे श्रीकृष्ण चैतन्य नित्यानंद सोरितो गुरुदाये पुष्पबंधो चित्रोसंधो तुमोनुदो Deyam sada paribhavnam vishtudoham Tethaspadam shivavirinchinutam sharanyam Vrittyatiham pranatapalaklavadipotam Pande mahapurushate charanaravindam Tyaktvasudus chajusurepsita rajalakshmim Dharmishtarya vachasa yadagardaranyam Mayamrigam daitaipshitamman vadhavad Vande Mahapurushate Charanaravindam E Krishna Karunasindu Dinabandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kantararagantanamustute Taptakanchanagaurangi Radhe Vrindavanishwari Vishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai Shri Krishna Naam Ki Jai Good evening everyone Thank you for coming I wanted to speak a little bit about myth and its meaning how it can have meaning for us in our everyday lives and I wanted to do that in the context of discussing the story, the myth, the wonderful story of of the deity of Sri Chaitanya, in whose lineage I'm coming. The dual deity, the plural deity of Radha and Krishna that represent the, the romantic life of the absolute God with passion, what God has a passion for seems appropriate given the setting of sincere spiritual seekers and the fact that it has been prefaced the talk by song and dance celebrating the divine is quite appropriate in that that was the principal means through song and dance that Sri Chaitanya and his principal associates experienced the uh, romantic life of the absolute and the means by which they distributed it, shared it with the uh, with the public. That story of Radha and Krishna is uh, found principally in the Bhagavad Purana, a very, very celebrated uh, Sanskrit text of almost 18,000 verses. And um, the associates, immediate associates of Sri Chaitanya in the 16th and 17th century in India, they like the, uh, if you will, the legendary compiler, author of the great uh, corpus of the scriptural canon of the Hindus, which is probably the most voluminous body of literature on earth. Like him, they were prolific also, following his lead. They sang and danced, made music, art, and drama and we're not short for words to speak about 
sing about, dance about, celebrate about that which is, well, lies beyond words and thought. It's said in the sutras, Ikshaterna Ashabdat, Vedanta Sutra, Ikshaterna Ashabdat, the great Shankar, thinker, philosopher, and realizer, rendered it something like this, that the nature of the Absolute is such that it is beyond words, beyond thought. So with that, he must become silent himself. (laughs) It's kind of a suicide in a way for the scriptures themselves, which are full of words. But uh, Sri Chaitanya reasoned, not differently, but with some perhaps development of, of thought, when he rendered it something to the effect that the Absolute is such that we cannot say enough about. So not something to be silent about. <laughs> and so, his <laughs> Harikata, the talk about Krishna, Radha Krishna is uh, not only talk, but song, dance, and celebrated in art and drama and so forth for centuries and centuries. In fact, in India, during the time of the, uh, before the British oppression, there was the, um, the Mughal oppression and they weren't very fond of the Hindu deities because they have a certain theology about forms and, and so forth and, uh, in relation to the Absolute. And if you look in Indian uh, history and culture and art, you'll find so many of the leelas, the divine play of Radha and Krishna, depicted in art with the signatures in Arabic. In other words, they were done by Muslim artisans. And, you know, there's a lot of friction between Hindus and Muslims. But when it comes to the pointing here, when it comes to the play of, of Radha and Govinda, it's so charming that they could have turned away from that. And they had to render it in art and themselves and so forth. And um, were appreciators of it. So, about that, I want to speak a little bit, try to go to the heart of that art with all of you. And, and with regard to myths in general, of course, we, we all know Joseph Campbell with regard to his preoccupation, lifelong practically preoccupation with myths and the myths of various cultures of the world. And I think it's safe to say that he more or less reached a conclusion in his study of the various myths throughout the world of different cultures while they tell us much about the psychology of the people, about the, the spirituality of the people, the meta-narrative that the people knowingly or unknowingly lived by, he concluded, and I think rightfully so, that they speak perhaps in their furthest reach to us about what Aldous Huxley popularized when he wrote the perennial philosophy. In other words, those myths speak about an underlying ground of being if you will, that connects us all and is bigger than all of those stories themselves put together beyond, as it is, the limitations of language and thought and, and so on and so forth. Richard Dawkins, you know, the famous uh, scientist and bestseller author, whose recent publication was talked about in Time magazine. I didn't read about it, but a friend told me about it, had some discussion about it. His book was called uh, The God Delusion. He's a well-known scientist. 
At any rate, at the end of his uh, interview in Time, which also hosted a, a theistic scientist, and he had kind of a, a debate, if you will, he said that, um, anyway, if there is a God, which is huge, <laughs> coming from the fellow that just wrote a book called The God Delusion, seeking to, to once and for all dismiss the poorly reasoned idea that there's uh, something beyond reason or beyond uh, what we can perceive with our sensual faculties. He said, if there is a God, then he's beyond whatever any theologian or any religious dogma or any tradition has, has said about him, to which I would reply, well said. <laughs> yes, we, we, we also say the same thing, but we, we don't dismiss those stories nonetheless because they do speak much about that and, and take us there in a way that rational thought often cannot. I mean, it's about love, let's face it, and love knows no reason. It's burdened by, by reason. It's not unreasonable. But it picks up where reason leaves off. And it can satisfy us more than the dry life of however well-reasoned it is that is more or less a proceed-with-caution type of mode of existence. When we are home, then there's no need to, to read the label on the bottle, what's inside, before we mother puts it on the table, eat with affection, and we know it must be good for me. We go to another country or we go to a, the wrong grocery store, <laughs> we've got to read the label very carefully what's in there. <laughs> so we're not at home. When we're burdened, to move with the caution that our rational faculty insists upon. Just like here I'm speaking to all of you from my heart, and you're listening, but with your reasoning. <laughs> and you let some thoughts go in, and some you may not let go in. So you're screening that. If it's reasonable, maybe I'll let it go in. But is life reasonable? <laughs> That we should think, that we should question. If it is, ultimately, then it's rather rather static and boring and predictable. But our everyday experience is, is such that it's not. And for a long, long time, people have been reasoning. And the most reasonable people will admit that reason has its limitations. That's the beginning of real thinking and real knowing. And then to find a trans-rational means of experiencing. And I want to go to that a little bit more. It's an important topic, but with regard to myth in general, and Campbell's keen insight into the fact that all the myths of all the different cultures speak to us in their furthest reach about an underlying unity and ground, as I say, of being that we all have in common, that we grow from, that we're rooted in. And while he did so, and while he was very much preoccupied in his youth with Native American myths and uh, and all, he had a very uh, fondness for Indian mythology, influenced by Schopenhauer, as he was, who was a, a confessed uh, Vedantist, and kind of the reasoning of Indian uh, Hindu uh, mythology. And Campbell had a like of that influenced by Krishnamurti very much as well. Although I don't think he went 
so much to the heart of Indian mythology, which comes to this uh, story of Radha and Krishna. He didn't get too deeply in that, left something for us perhaps to, to chew on and, and try to digest. A big subject within Hindu mythology, which is so profound, so complex comparatively to even to other cultures and so abundant, and so directly does it speak to us about the idea of a ultimate ground of being that we all are rooted in and have in common. So much so that indeed that in many circles the term perennial philosophy became synonymous with Sanatan Dharma, which is kind of the Hindu way of saying perennial philosophy, I guess. So it's a very, uh, amongst myths, then, Hindu mythology is very extraordinary. And within that, the story of Radha and Krishna is, like I say, the heart of the whole affair. You know, Buddhism also comes out of Hinduism. So we have the Buddha, he's, he's the wisdom of the Absolute. And that's important. It's important to know what is not in our interest. The Buddha reasoned well when he said that thirst, Trishna, not Krishna, but Trishna, thirst, or what he meant by this desire, fuels samsara. Samsara means, of course, material existence. It, 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 uh, it fosters a sense of the circular in a negative way. Circular can be positive also, but in a negative way, in that it's going round, round and round. What did you say? Round and round. And round. The circle game. So it goes round and round. round. And um, you never get anywhere, in other words. So to break out of that, this is the idea, to go beyond that. Samsara, samsara, dhavanala. Sometimes it's called like a, like a fire. The fire of, of thirst, the fire of desire is fueling that. And he reasoned wisely when he said that desire causes suffering. So to stop desire is to stop suffering. And to stop suffering is to be happy, kind of in an abstract way. If you stop suffering, then there's some relief. And in comparison to a life of suffering, that's happy. If we arrive at zero, after having been in negative numbers, we'll feel that we've gone somewhere. And we have. (laughs) We have. And there are negative numbers. And this is samsara. Samsara means like that, negative numbers. It means the realm of karma. I owe, I owe, so off to work, I go. (laughs) It's a bumper sticker. I didn't didn't make it up. So, it's a fact. It's it's like, uh, you know, in the credit world, credit economy that we live, we borrow, and uh, we appear to have gotten something from that, but if we read carefully (laughs) the document that you just signed, you you know, you owe much more, more than that you got in your hand, compounded interest and so forth. So this is the the nature of the realm of karma, where by plugging ourselves into that, we become indebted, we take, and so we owe. 
And why do we take in the realm of karma? Because we're moving by the force of a misperception that we're in need. A misperception that, that, that our identification with something needy fosters. And what is that something that is needy? Our very sense of self, materially speaking. I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm Indian, American, black, white, red, yellow, or any combination in between. This, whether it be physical or the psychic dimension of our sense of self, it's here today and gone tomorrow. Nice poem from the Bhagavad, that story of Radha and Krishna. Ayurharati Vaipumsam Udyanastam Jayanaso. Ayur, you know? Ayurved. Ayur means life. So Ayurharati. Harati means to take away. Ayurharati Vaipumsam. The Pumsam, all living beings, their life, Ayurharati, is being taken away. By what? Udyanastam Jayanaso. By such a beautiful and profound thing, the rising and the setting of the sun is taking away our life, as we know it, as we want it to be. We actually, we want it to be more than what we want it to be, it can be. What we want it to be, it can be. We want to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it. That's pretty much what we want. <laughs> and you can do it. You can have it. But we're going about it in such a way that we'll never arrive there. That is Leela. Krishna Leela, he's doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. No rules there. If we say life is about love, which means it doesn't make sense, as I said earlier. And I'm sure it is about love. I mean to say that I'm sure that it progresses, it moves progressively by giving, not by taking. And that we grow by giving. And that our sense of self is contracted by taking and it is expanded by giving. And anybody think for a moment, not even the, the reasoning of it, but just go to your own experience of it. When you give, you get. And what do you get? You get yourself. That has been lost in a life of taking, of misperception in which you think you need based on an identity with something that is needy, that is here today and will be gone tomorrow unless I think I do something about it. But do whatever you want about it. <laughs> do as much as do as much, whatever you want. Become as rich as you want, as powerful as you can. What do they say? Time and tide waits for no man or woman. <laughs> I mean, we are living on death row. It's just a, there's no governor, you know, to intervene. It's, it's a fact. And it refers, as I say, to our physical and psychic dimension, that psychic dimension where we define our self, which is largely based, unfortunately, we don't think that deeply on our physical being. <laughs> of course, some people reason a little further, and that, that's good. And people like you are here because you do, but for the most part, that's really an unfortunate state of affairs where we reason for the sake of indulgence. Nothing could be more pathetic than to use reason simply for indulgence rather than to reason how to love, how not to indulge, how not to be self-indulgent. This is where reason becomes helpful.
But when reason is wedded, makes a pact with the senses in their preoccupation with sense objects, then what have we become? Our human dignity is lost. This is the coral of animality. Sometimes they said we are distinguished from the less complex species of life. Because of this reasoning, if we use it merely to indulge, what do we become? We become the most wild, ferocious beast. We endanger all species, including our own. So, reasoning is valuable to a point. We, we spoke about its limitations briefly earlier. It has value. But when it's tied to, when it makes a pact with the senses, our moving senses and our perceiving senses, to expand our capacity to indulge, then it's very unbecoming. We should use it, as I say, to expand our sense of self, to let it grow, rather than to contract it, and reason how to love, how to give. Reason that life, that means to say, is not reasonable, because we see practically that even though it doesn't make sense, that if you were to give, you would get. It doesn't make sense. If I have so many things and I give one away, it doesn't make sense that I'm going to get more. But that happens. I may not get the commodity itself, but how valuable is it anyway? But by giving, I get. I, can't, I cannot hold up in a, before you, I got this. Just see. Neither if I'm giving, in the true sense, will I be looking for the gain. But I will be filled with that, and I will exude it in a way that others will be attracted. Darwin reasoned that, I guess, and I'm not a scientist, but that the most evolved person is the meanest person. But in our own human experience, that doesn't cross our mind, does it? We reason that the most evolved person is the kindest person. Is there any debate between a Hitler and a Mother Teresa in human society who is a more evolved being? A brute? No. Or a gentle giver, a kind soul. This is progress. This is how life moves really beneath the, the surface of our perception, gathered as it is through the senses, limited as they are, these faculties, limited in terms of their capacity to reveal, limited as mind is, in terms of affording us real knowing. They can be used, senses, mind, intellect, in the pursuit of real knowing and real experience, but if we limit our sense of what can be known and what can be experienced to them, oh, we've missed so much of what life has to offer. Myth. One thing about the myth of Radha and Govinda, Radha Krishna, being the heart, as I say, of this Indian mythology, the very heart of it, it's very attractive. It's very compelling. You almost want to enter there and never come out. I mean, there the Absolute is depicted in, as a youth. And he's not sitting on a big throne with so many heads and hands and giving so many orders, but adorned with a peacock feather and the natural clays from the soil. And 
playing the flute. His color is sham. You've seen the artistic depiction of, of Krishna. Sham. It means, we say black or blue, but it's a color. In Indian aesthetics, then every emotion has a color. And sham is the color of romantic love. This is how these mystics experienced reality as a lover, youthful, perpetually. Adolescence, you know, youth is such a valuable commodity. Everyone wants it. Everyone wants the youth to do what? Join my corporation, join my branch of the military, stay at home with me. The universities want the youth, all the businesses and so youth, very attractive. Old people want it. Only people don't want it is young people. <laughs> this is the power. They want to get older. <laughs> the power of illusion. But youth spent well. It's time spent wisely. Unfortunately, for the most part, often, more often than not, it's not. Before our children say, you were pretty smart actually. Now that I think about it, with an adult mind, you had some good advice for me to their parents. But these mystics, they saw in their heart of hearts the absolute like this playful, youthful, and the intensity with which they wanted to associate with that ultimate reality was like that of a young girl, intensity of love, new love for a young boy. There's nothing that can get in the way of this. This is the idea. You try it, and you may have. My good friend, Karan Amrita, who's hosted me here in North Carolina a number of times, my, my first time to Asheville, he's a, also a marriage counselor. He has a good wife. And he was telling me today about one couple. And it's, it's not a unique experience, but he does premarital counseling also. And he was talking about a young couple that weren't going to make it. According to the science of premarital counseling, they, they were, their stars were not in the same heavens. But they were, of course, infatuated with one another. And however well he and his good wife would reason to them and try to couch it and, well, let's just wait and see and give it some time and so forth. It's hard to listen. If you try to put something in the way of that, it will only increase the flame of desire. So they wanted these mystics to associate with the Absolute, with that kind of intensity. And from that came this depiction of the Absolute as Radha and Krishna. Radha's love for Krishna was more important to them than Krishna, because they felt there's a degree of intensity in devotion and love that exceeds, surpasses certainly selfishness, but even self-dutiful self-sacrifice that reaches a pitch of what might be called self-forgetfulness. In other words, selfishness we've talked a little bit about, that which causes the self to contract, that small-mindedness, where reason serves only to facilitate our indulgence, life of exploitation, the realm of karma, where you're taking, we're all exploiting with every breath, in the pursuit of preserving a sense of identity that has no chance of enduring. We want enduring life. 
That's good. Good. <laughs> that, that can be had. But on what terms can we experience it? And not on the terms of our mind. This is the real myth. If you want to talk about myth in terms of it being a fantasy, of course I'm talking about myth in terms of it having, having meaning to it. And I want to take that as far as I can, anyway. But it's often thought that when you bring up the word myth, you're talking just about a fantasy. But there's no greater fantasy than the world of our mind. Informed as it is by sensual input, we collect feelings with our tactile sense, sounds with our sense of hearing, forms with our sense of sight, and so forth. And these impressions of being and reality are relayed to the central computer, if you will, of our mind. And in a simple way, the mind says, Sankalpa Bikalpa. That means, I, I like this, I don't like that. That's good, that's bad. That's happy, that's sad. That's hot, this is cold. And what happens then? A world is determined for someone who's dwelling in that mind, a world of goods and bads and happies and sads, and if this is bad, then I don't want it. If this is good, I want it. I might want a hot sometimes, I might want a cold, right? And the problem with it, of course, is what's good for you may be bad for another. What's happy for you may be sad for me. What's hot for you may be cold for me. So we're all living in our not-so-sovereign domain of mind, and we're inevitably at odds with, with one another. We're at odds with ourselves, for that matter, because our senses change. And what was good before has become bad now. Even though I made such effort to acquire it. In fact, I, I, I'm still paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's now making me unhappy. So this world of the mind, this is oppressive. Because it's based on a perception, a false perception of my sense of self, a self that is in need, in other words, that threatened with non-existence, that won't endure if I don't do something. I'm busy doing something, but everything I'm doing, I'm just becoming more implicated in the whole affair, the whole myth. I mean, it's totally false, <laughs> this world of the mind. It's not hot or cold. It's not good or bad. These, as you know, are just, uh, that's what we mean when we say judgmental and spiritual. So we're just imposing our intellect on the environment and reading the environment with the intellect alone is like peeping through a hole in the fence to try to see what's on the other side. There's a whole pasture there and a mountain range beyond that. And beyond that the sun comes up <coughs> from there and where, where does it go? It's not because we think that we know. Thinking is, gets in the way of our knowing. It's not because we, we, we see, because we can see because we have eyes. Our eyes get in the way of seeing what's to be seen. Ears get in the way of what's to be heard. So a world informed by these imperfect instruments and then reasoned about with our mental intellectual faculty as to what they are, whether they're good or bad or happy or sad or hot or cold, is such a small world. The only thing that keeps us there is it allows us to think that we're big. 
It's such a small world, but we're allowed to think we're big. Like it's almost the center. We're the center. We don't maybe do this consciously, but unconsciously we do. It's a very unfriendly world, the world of our mind, really. We are not even fully comfortable in it. But we want everybody else to live inside of it. Is that reasonable? <laughs> so unreasonable. So to come out from that, and a myth, a story, like the story of Radha and Krishna, Sri Chaitanya, in whose lineage I'm coming from 15th century Bengal, was so preoccupied with this story of Radha and Krishna that day and night he lost all sense of external consciousness absorbed in this story. In other words, it completely dismantled, it has the power to completely dethrone, I should say, the emperor of, of the mind, the kingdom of the mind, to go and completely just, just tear it down. All mental constructs melted and he swam only in an ocean of ecstasy and love. He would just, hearing the name of Krishna, he would fall into a swoon. It has such power. I mean, there's an ex the example is there. It has such power. And inside the name, what's in a name? His principal means of experiencing the reality that the story of Radha and Krishna speaks to us about was through song or through dance. And within that, the singing of the name, Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna. But what's in a name? We may dismiss the thing as being yeah. a cute thing or a nice thing. It's okay, but much in a name, think about it. That's why I say, did you get his name? Now you say, if you get their social security number, then you're right there. That's your name. You got everything. Your bank account is cleaned out your whole life. What's in a name? So much in a name. Then that Krishna makes himself available in the form of the name. That's very extraordinary because where does it take us? You see, the Krishna name, the many names of God, all good. Speaking about so many different aspects of divinity. We talked about the Buddha, the wisdom of divinity. But this Krishna name, where does it take us? It takes us to the heart of divinity, what God has a passion for. That's a very interesting idea. <laughs> In other words, the whole story of Radha and Krishna speaks to us about the implications of it are very far-reaching, even with regard to the perennial philosophy. After all, Campbell reasoned that all the myths, with all the language that goes with them, ultimately took us to a ultimate reality that was non-specific, while each of the myths are specific. But the story of Radha and Krishna, if you study it carefully and hear about it from experiencers who have some taste for that, it starts to say to us, wait a minute, is an undifferentiated, non-specific ground of being the height of spiritual experience or is it the lowest common denominator? The beginning of stepping off from the world of the mind and the world of the senses. We're all together, we're all one. Personally, I think to say it is all one is not to do justice to it. It's one, it's different at the same time. So the story of Radha and Krishna 
it's, it says to us, does God have a love life? Maybe it's a strange way to put it. But let me put it like this then. Is ultimate reality still shanti, shanti, shanti? Ultimate quietude, peace, because no one else is there? In other words, we've given up all of our individuality of what's good, what's bad, what's happy, what's sad, based on the world of our mind that's keeping us from really finding camaraderie in in a full sense with one another. So leave it all behind, this world of name and form, and go to a realm where we're all one, we're all consciousness. But if we're all one, and and there's some truth to that, there's no doubt, then the reason it's peaceful is there's nobody else there. (laughs) There's nobody to... There's nobody to argue with. There's nobody to have a different opinion with. So, that's one idea of oneness. And it's well-reasoned, and I agree with it very much. But, in contemplating this story of Radha and Krishna, Sri Chaitanya reasoned that we may be able to nuance this further here. This may be the gateway, the beginning. We come to common ground. Now, can there be variety and differentiation that doesn't compromise unity, as it does here. Our varieties of your good is my bad, this is compromising unity. But can there be a plane of experience where there is unity and diversity, but the diversity does not compromise the unity? That would be uncommon. That would be very uncommon. Think of it. Spiritual life is, is very uncommon. Is it merely the enlightened antithesis of material life. Material life being a perception of differentiation, a perception of variety that's only in the mind, that gets in the way of the unity that we sense is at the heart of reality, that love must be based on. Love is a unity, right? It is, but but think about it. Is it a unity that's accomplished by doing away with everybody else? If you and I are in love, then you and I become we. It's a oneness, but there's a difference there too. It's a, your desires become mine. Mine become yours. You still exist, I still exist, but you live in my mind and I live in yours. Something like that. Love is a unity, yes, but it's not a static unity. It's a dynamic unity. So the story of Radha and Krishna says to us, wait a minute, as I said, there's a possibility of nuancing the common idea of the perennial philosophy, which is that life culminates in the extinguishing of material variety coming from negative numbers of karma to zero. Stop exploiting, being exploited by the demands of your mind and senses and doing the unbecoming things that they force us to do. I mean, how many times have you ever reasoned that something would not be good for you but done it anyway? (laughs) Have you ever not done that? Might be a better way to ask the question. This is our unfortunate, pathetic and unbecoming condition. So this is, this is again, this is the realm of karma, negative numbers. To come to zero, I mean, it's a big thing. It's a huge thing. But the question is, that the story of Radha and Krishna, if you study it, 
causes us to ask is, are there any positive numbers? In other words, is love a reality? Is love a reality or is love only part of the world of illusion? Which is unreasonable. In other words, you fall in love, you do unreasonable things. Materially speaking, love can be quite unreasonable. You deviate from reasoning regularly for love or for what you lust, whatever, however you want to call it. But love is so central, isn't it? I mean, we would be satisfied with an abstract idea of love that means only the absence of exploitation. What about the whole full face of love? Does it have any expression in, in ultimate reality? Or is the love that life is ultimately about, as I say, merely an abstract love, being the absence of taking, the absence of exploitation, the coming from negative numbers to zero? Or are there any positive numbers? What is the difference between karma, represented, as I say, by that slogan, I owe, I owe, and off to work I go, the realm of exploitation, the movement, I mean to say, that we are involved in, that is obligatory. We owe. So off to work I go. In other words, we've taken, therefore we owe. We're in the realm of karma. We're moving in pursuit of perpetuity, enduring life, enduring happiness. But our movements are, we're like in quicksand. The more you move, the more you go down. Because the movement is based on a perceived need, so you take, now you owe. That's karma, obligatory work. Now, when Krishna's dancing, what is that? There's movement. If we reason movement in the realm of karma, this is problematic, stop moving. The Buddha said it, stop desiring. It's well-reasoned, so go home tonight. Stop desiring. Go ahead. <laughs> if you want some assistance, sit in front of a white wall and stare at it. <laughs> See, it was rather a bitter pill. <laughs> uh, but well-reasoned. Yes, desire is the problem. But what the story of Radha and Govinda offers is this is kind of a more user-friendly type of approach to the whole thing, in, in one sense. It talks about stopping desiring, but it it fosters that in such an interesting way by engaging us in art, music, drama, for example, song, dance, beautiful uh, literature, and meditation upon the dance, for example, of Radha and Krishna, depicted as it is in that Bhagavad Purana. Very charming. I mean, it's easy to read something like that because well if we don't read it there we'll read it somewhere else but we won't get the same effect right if we just read a love novel or watch a love story we won't get the same effect this is interesting to think of this is a love story Sri Chaitanya was preoccupied with this love story and he was a tyagi a renunciate a sannyasin I mean (laughs) walking on food everywhere no thought for where I will lay my head, where I will get my next meal. Nadanum, nadanum, nasundurim, kobitam, ba, jagadisha, kamaye. 
no desire for followers, for the opposite sex, for wealth, fame, anything. A complete life of renunciation to the extreme. I mean, you have to read the history, but extreme. And internally, he was preoccupied with a love story. What kind of love story is that? Who, who it was spoken by historically, as it's recorded in the Bhagavad Purana that I mentioned earlier? It's spoken by Sukadev, Sukha, Sukadev. He was a young boy, 16 years old. He told the story to the emperor, the Raj Parikshit, on the bank of the Ganges. The emperor was told he had seven days to live. So he went to the bank of the Ganges and said, what, what to do? He asked, what is the purpose of life, and especially at the time of death, what, what, what should one do? And so many people came. This is the setting of the, in which the story of Radha and Krishna is told. So many people came to the big rishis, thinkers, and so forth, and they all offered some advice. And then this boy came out of nowhere, a 16-year-old boy, naked. Oblivious means to even his external condition. And everybody stepped back. Let the boy speak. Where it will come from, we don't know. But listen in such a way. We should try to listen. For try to get guidance. Try to find wherever it will come. It may come from unexpected quarters, most unexpected quarters. It might come. It might come. And even like this, it's possible. A home-knowing person can touch your heart. For home-going, we need a home-knowing guide. That person, he or she, can speak in such a way, regardless of what you think and how much you began filtering the thoughts and letting some go in and some go out. can capture your mind. You stop thinking about it. It's all going in. It's all going into the heart. You're not reasoning about it, following the whole train of reasoning, perhaps, but it's going in your heart and it will affect you forever. Sangha, real Sangha does this. Real Sadhu Sangha does this. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra, Lava Matra. Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai. A moment of that is so powerful that it will change your life forever. And when you start to wake up, you'll remember that moment. That moment began. There. And I've been building on that over time. It comes from up to down. Real knowing comes from up to down. If God wants us to know, we can know. Otherwise not. Revelation. This is comprehensive knowing. You want for perfect knowing? Yes, we all want perfect knowing because all action is informed by knowledge and we are all in pursuit through our actions of perfect happiness. So we want perfect knowledge. Where will it come from? We have to have a perfect method to get that. It won't come from an imperfect method. What is the perfect method? <laughs> this is the perfect method. If there is perfection within our imperfection, it is this, folding your hands and acknowledging your imperfection. That is perfection. You understand? For the imperfect. And that will cause perfection to be disposed towards us. If we go the other way, asserting ourselves, <laughs> how will that attract? Two positives, magnetically speaking, they repel. You need one negative, one positive. God is the positive, the pusher, the sustainer, the doer. What is our position? We're the female side. We're negative, but that's positive. Do you understand? 
That's real positive. Because what? That, acknowledging that, and moving in that direction, cultivating that, that attracts the positive in ways that it would never come within our purview. Not by any force of power, of however subtle. I knew a fellow once, not so long ago, he was, he was speaking with me, he had long dreadlocks, and nice fellow, and he was thinking about joining our group, and I said, well, you know, in my group, the monks, they shave their heads, and I was just joking with him. He said, oh, I cannot do that. All my power is in my hair. I said, you see, it's not about power. It's not about getting power. It's about acknowledging who's actually powerful. <laughs> the power in your hair, however yogic it may be, is a small thing. These rishis, when they contemplated Radha's love for Krishna, they wanted that kind of love, that kind of intensity. Like a young girl, falling in love with a young boy. This world of mine is all our pushing, all asserting ourselves. It's repulsive to the Absolute. All this self-asserting. We have to move in another direction. You want enduring life and perfect knowledge that will inform that and make it perfectly happy. You have to have a perfect method to get that. You have to hold your hands. You take it mathematically. How can the finite know the infinite? To know means, I know it, right? It's mine. To control it, that's what I mean. So how the finite will know the infinite? It's not possible mathematically. But, of course, if you think from the perspective of the infinite, then it becomes quite easily possible. Because the infinite can do anything, right? So there's nothing impossible coming from that side. That land of Leela, that is the land where the impossible doesn't exist. That's not in the dictionary there. All things possible. From there, if the infinite wants the finite to know itself, then it's possible. And what kind of knowing? What kind of controlling? Love. Love is such power to control. So the story of Radha and Krishna is such that what happens? Radha conquers Krishna. Bhakti itself. Love is supreme. Both devotee and Bhagwan, God, drawn to the same point of love. Full giving, no taking. Stop taking. That will start to dismantle the taking persona that we have. Bring us from negative numbers, as I say, to zero. Now, this story of Radha's Krishna is for taking us to positive numbers, up to 108. So, so high in ideal. And as I say, Sri Chaitanya, a good example. What kind of story is that? That 16-year-old boy was speaking about it. Sri Chaitanya was preoccupied with that story. A love story. The 16-year-old boy spoke the story of Radha and Krishna to the Raj. And he was completely oblivious to external conditions. So what is this story then? It's not just a normal, ordinary uh, romance. It's Leela. And what is Leela? As I said, what is karma? We've talked about that. Karma is movement. Leela is movement. They look similar. You've seen Krishna depicted in art, herding cows, dancing with girls in the forest. You can dance with girls, or girls can dance with boys. <laughs> you can do all those things. What's the difference? 
The difference between Leela and Karma is, is this. Karma is work. Karma is obligatory. Karma is work that I have to do because I've taken. I have to repay. If I give up that taking, I can come to rest and be quiet and still and peaceful. I can find the basic ground of being. <sighs> A great relief. I'm not the body, I'm consciousness. I endure. I wanted enduring life, and I endure. I wanted to know, and I'm a knower. I'm an experiencer. Matter is experienced. I'm the experiencer. If there's any experience that is the most profound in human experience, it's the experience that we experience. In other words, nature wakes up. It's got a soul in human life. Now what to do about it? Stop taking, but we must come to giving ultimately. This is the idea. If you stop taking through yoga, and I mean in the scientific way, spiritually scientific way, in a well-reasoned path, with good guidance and so forth, not just whimsically or on your own. I say that from my own experience. I certainly don't foster myself on you as, as, as any teacher, but I've had teachers and I know the value of that as everything to me. My life is made from that. Not so much what I've learned, but the grace that's come in that kind of company. In a thoughtful way, we move away from the realm of karma, the world of taking. We come to peace, quietude, self-realization. A love of God is to go, really to go from there. And from quietude and oneness to the variegatedness of lila. Sri Chaitanya reason like this, and I'll conclude with this, but movement in this world, based on the demands of the mind and the senses, that is disconcerting, ultimately. To scientifically, as I say, move away from that and come to peace, then if you have no desire, then why do anything? Right? Why move? If you're happy, why move? Therefore, the reasoning is, happiness must be still. But Sri Chaitanya reasoned, based on the story of Radha and Krishna, wait a minute, as I say, let me nuance this, he thought, there may be a kind of movement that's not out of necessity, that's celebratory of the extent of one's fullness. You follow me? <laughs> that's, uh, I'm, in this, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, you know. That's what I'm like. You don't have to like me, but... <laughs> The, the dynamism of the world of thought and so forth is really static when you look at it. It goes nowhere. It's circular, as I say. To come out of that is to come to a dynamic static. In other words, a zero that's positive. It's a static zero, but it's dynamic in relation to the movement of the material world. If we get really full, then that will foster a kind of movement that is dynamic. That's what we call lila. It's celebratory. In other words, if you're really full, you can't just sit there. You've got to dance and celebrate it. So Krishna lila, in a simple sense, in a philosophical sense, it's, it's this. It's a movement of the Absolute. It's beyond... Oh, it's like... Um, it's love. So there's, there's such a thing. So the lila of Radha and Krishna, the story, the myth, if you will, of Radha and Krishna, speaks to us about something so high in transcendence, yet it comes so close to us in our imminent worldly situation 
that it addresses the urge in this, within all of us for love and the sense that life will be fulfilled when I find love. It doesn't say, no, love is false. You're looking for something that you can't get. Stop desiring like that. Be one. Be quiet. Be still. It doesn't say, it says, no, actually, there's a reason for that. That's rooted in the Absolute. He's a lover. And you, a particle of that, you're also a lover. And you can enter into the love life of Radha and Krishna by song, by dance, and so on. Thank you.